Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint. My guest today is journalist, writer and host of BBC Radio 4's Today Show, Amal Rajan. He's also the latest host of University Challenge, and when he's not doing all of that, you'll sometimes catch him on the sofa at The One Show or interviewing a global star for Amol Rajan interviews. He's a busy man. And amongst all of this, he's also got to find time for parenting duties and to watch his beloved cricket. Sounds ambitious, but ambition has never been a problem. At just 29 years old, Amol was appointed editor of The Independent, but more on that later. As we hurtle towards the end of the year, finances are still a key concern for lots of us. In fact, a report in November 2021 stated that one in five people in their 50s and 60s were likely to experience an old age marred by financial and physical ill health. Two years on, has anything changed? We're going to be discussing this and what we can do about it with the host of the Financial Times Money Clinic podcast, Claire Barrett. But first, let's meet Amal. Amal Rajan, welcome to the midpoint. Well, you're kind of in the midpoint. You're 40. You're at the younger end. You're in the prime of your life. Does it feel like that? 40 kind of is the midpoint, isn't it? I mean, the average age being sort of 80 odd, I certainly feel uh, increasingly midpointish. But I've seen your incredibly uh, and quite annoyingly good looking children on this podcast. And they're substantially younger than me. So I think 40 is well into midpoint zone. How old are your kids? Oh, Gabby. <laughs> My kids, my kids are, and I'm going to try so hard not to complain about this because I realise how blessed I am. And there's a, a story behind that, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, my kids are seven, four, two, and 12 weeks. <gasps> I and didn't know about the fourth are, one. Oh, we're in it. We're in yeah. it. We're in it. And, um, you know, as we might get to, I, there was a many, many years where we thought we wouldn't have children. And so to be here is an extraordinary blessing. But my God, it's hard. Yes. And if you knew how I many, you had twins, my goodness. And I don't know how on earth anyone gets through that. But I mean, yeah, if you knew how hard it was, you might not do it. Um, but I'm <laughs> but sure it gets it four easier. times. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Does it get easier? Everyone says it gets easier. It gets less kind of biologically demanding, but more kind of emotionally yes, demanding. Yes, that's right? exactly it. That's exactly it. You don't have the sleep deprivation after a while um, and you don't feel as physically exhausted, but they test you in other ways and lovely ways and challenge you. But I'm terrified about the idea. I've got one. So uh, my boy Winston is seven. Then I've got three girls that are quite close together. And um, I don't know what it's like to be a girl teenager ever, but I have a particular worry about being a girl teenager now. And all those things that you feel when you're young, you feel like such an old person to complain about like social media and mobile phones. And then you become that person and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm actually terrified. And boys, boys, I mean, I'm just, I'm terrified of boys. Listen, you need to listen to loads of back episodes of The Midpoint because we discuss boys in particular on Alex Jones's episode, actually. We had a, a wonderful lady on who'd written a book all about kind of the boys and how to challenge their kind of, you know, social concepts and what they're seeing in life and who their role models are and all those kinds of things. But you know what? By the time your kids get to that age, I'm hoping that we might have realised that 
having kids with, you know, very young kids with phones and all that kind of thing is so dangerous and damaging that it'll be seen as something that you'd never do, maybe, and that they, they will have different experiences. But you need, you need, don't you, you need a core group of parents, fellow parents who are in the same position. Because if there's one parent at the school gates, so I've got this, I mean, let's just, I'm going to, I'm going to fess up to some stuff that I probably shouldn't. I find it bonkers that my son has mates who at the age of five had access to games consoles. Does that make me sound really old? I mean, no. I, sound like, I, I think that's bonkers. No. When I was a kid, games consoles were like a kind of mid to late teenage thing, if you're lucky. Mm. And it's always that thing of um, their mates who've got older siblings and the older siblings has got something and so they introduce them to it. And I think that's bonkers. But as soon as you've got one person in class who's got it and who by virtue of having that games console is the cool person, everyone wants to follow that person. So you need like a core solid group of people, maybe it's the parents, to say, we're not going to have this and we're not going to have mobile phones until they're 15 or whatever. And if there's just a tiny chink in that solidarity, I think it gets quite hard as a parent to hold the line. You've got a, a way, though, before we have to hopefully start worrying too much about that. You know, there's a, the, yeah, I mean, well, I say a way, it's not, it's not that far, is it? A few years goes very quickly, kind of, I think, when your kids are very young. But we'll, we'll crack straight in then to your relationship with your wife on this, because your wife is a professor and um, her speciality, because she's kind of sociology is the overarching kind of subject, isn't it, in social policy. And she has actually um, written and looked at one of her specialist subjects, how couples divide childcare, I believe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's she's very eminent in her field, uh, Dr. Charlotte Faircloth. So um, what that paper and that study that she did, does that directly impact you guys at home? Yeah, it's a bit close to home in more ways than one. I kind of feel like I'm the actual subject of her academic research. Um, yeah, I mean, Charlie, who's incredible, um, and yeah, sort of brain box of Britain, but also just the most amazing person, um, did a PhD on a group of uh, mums in France, I think they're called La Leche League, who breastfeed their children until they're quite old. Um, mm. and it was called militant lactivism. And she kind of developed this interest in um, how motherhood has changed, broadly speaking. And the I think the overarching feeling is that there's been this revolution in post-war Britain where women's women's role has changed very substantially and you've talked about this a huge amount on the podcast um as they've entered the workplace and there was this traditional thing about kind of can women have it all there's a big change in how uh, men relate to their kids which is something we should definitely talk about and one of the um things that she now looks at is the impact on couples and how they split childcare. and when you've got four um there's a huge amount to do and i think one of the th- elements of her research which i find most interesting because it's taught me a lot about myself is even when as uh, a modern dad who tries to be extremely present is extremely present it's by far and away the most important thing i do um, i read to them every night try to do the school run both ends of the day every single day of the week except when i'm on the today program no matter how much you do i think there are certain things that in general and this is a huge generalization women still do a lot more of and that includes things like you know life admin and the emotional load and a lot of the sort of drudgery and we split the drudgery reasonably um effectively but i think that one of the things that and this is not a new idea there was a wages for housework movement in the 1980s that looked at this sort of stuff i think one of the things that her research focuses on is the fact that parenthood seems to have got much much harder because it seems like the stakes are so much higher. We're all told that being how you are as a parent can determine your children's future. And the pressure on couples is immense. And for all the kind of advances in what men do, 
women still do a huge amount of um, unrecognized labor and they do it because they love their family and I think that's the kind of focus of her of her research but it does sometimes feel a little bit like I'm kind of part of some giant experiment where I'm going to get written about <laughs> and I immediately start thinking about your upbringing right which I wanted to get onto anyway because it's uh, it's you know you are the, the poster boy for, for kind of how you know immigration can really be a beneficial part of our society and how your family came from India for a better life. And, you know, obviously education was hugely important and pushing you as, you know, as hard as they could to, to have a great life here. You went to Cambridge, you know, they're an enormous success story. But then I think back when you're talking about your role as a dad, I think about your dad, you know, and, and his generation, what would he think about that? And how were the roles in your house growing up defined? It's amazing you ask that because I've thought about this a huge amount over the last couple of years. My, my dear dad died last year and um, it was by a long way the biggest and most traumatic thing that I've ever been through. And I still, you know, I'm still struggling with it in a big way. Um, actually, just the other day, I woke up on this bed behind me and I'm completely drenched. Uh, you know, the um, pillow was completely drenched and I, I didn't know what was going on. And I sort of came to and I realised that I'd been dreaming about my dad and I was crying. And I think that's the first time I can ever remember um, crying in my dreams. I, I, don't, mm. I don't recall that. And um, I've dreamt about him every single night after he died for the first six or eight months. And it was every single night I'd go to bed knowing that I was going to dream about him. I did dream about him. I woke up and it hit me like a freight train that he wasn't there anymore. And I always um, have looked up to my dad as kind of an idol. I think there's this interesting distinction between being a hero who has flaws and an idol who's like this sort of God. And, you know, my dad was a bit of an idol to me. He was one of 11 children born into unimaginable uh, poverty in rural Southeast India. Um, the cleverest person you could ever meet is a genuine sort of genius. Um, and he, together with my incredible mum, gave up everything to come here. But it's only um, after he's gone that I've started to think some kind of heretical thoughts for instance, I asked my mum only after he died, when suddenly people die, you have all these questions that you didn't realise you had for them. Mm. I asked things like, you know, did he ever change a nappy? And my mum was like, <laughs> <laughs> the idea of your dad anywhere near a nappy, are you kidding? You know, and, you know, or when my dad couldn't cook, for instance. Um, and quite a lot of what we now do as kind of modern dads, and I think that fatherhood, as you discuss on the podcast a lot, has undergone this amazing revolution and we benefit from it as, as blokes. You know, my dad didn't do any of that sort of stuff. He was a very mm. traditional, very Indian, very small C conservative, very demanding, very disciplinarian dad. And the broad message was, I didn't give up everything to come to this country with your beloved mother in order to see you waste your time. And you've got to make something of your life because you're damn lucky. And I kind of, you know, I basically think that anything good that has come out of my career um, is a sort of feeling, arises from a sort of feeling that I've got to fulfill the sacrifices that he and my mum made, mm. that he couldn't be more different to me as a dad. And that throws up so many different issues. I don't know where to, where to begin on, on that answer, because at the very beginning, when you talked about your grief, I feel that is, is a really important area we should discuss. Um, but just the last bit, we'll go back to grief. The last bit there, we say you're very different. Has it made you, you said heretical, has it made you feel any different about him? Because we, we do hero worship, obviously, people. And then afterwards, maybe we think, oh, actually, or do you actually admire the way they stuck to their roles in, in, in that respect? And in some ways, is it 
was it easier when people knew their roles? It was easier. It was easy. But I think that it was easier. It was it was easier for blokes. And I think that the unwritten history of, you know, our species in some ways, particularly in a modern period, is of women with hugely frustrated ambitions that no one ever heard from. And, you know, my mum worked. She was a dinner lady to begin with. Then she worked as a nursery manager, nursery teacher. Then she worked in admin for the foreign office. But those kind of... So my mum and dad had an arranged marriage. They had a very traditional thing. You know, there's this amazing thought I have when I... makes me emotional just thinking about it. Where, you know, in 1977, when they got together, they walked into a room not knowing what the other person looked like, but knowing that they were going to spend the rest of their lives together. Mm. Which is bonkers and that's still how things happen in india today and it was a very traditional um kind of alliance and that they're from a very different part of india but you know there was never any suggestion that they would ever i don't know split up or they just did things in a traditional way my mum never used a cash point for instance you know my dad sorted out all the money that sort of thing and in a way they had clearly demarcated roles and i think that was easier for dads and uh, and, and men because i think it allowed them to kind of give themselves a kind of narrative of being the hero who kind of, you know, mm. goes and works hard all day. and brings. They had all the power. They had all the power, yeah. And I do actually think that a huge number of men end up regretting how hard they worked and how emotionally absent they were from, I mean, this mm. is a huge generalisation, but how emotionally absent they were from mm. their children's lives. And I and all my mates are so much more emotionally invested in the day-to-day of our children. And I'm not saying that because I expect a reward for it. It's great. It's the best thing about my life is my relationship with my children and my immediate family. And I do think that my dad in his later years saw me. And so he would have been, my son was uh, about five when he died. Um, And one of my daughters had been born. I do think he saw me. And I think a little part of him thought maybe a mole's onto something. Maybe the better way to be a parent is... Right. But he never said that. He never said, And he never said anything the other way? He never said to you, hang on a minute, son, this is not your job. You shouldn't be doing this. No, I think he was just shocked. I mean, I think he was just genuinely shocked. The idea, and this is you know, only a few years ago, the idea of us changing nappies or doing night feeds. And as I said, I do want to, to emphasise, I don't think we deserve kind of accolades for that. I think it's just, mm. it should be the norm. But it's an interesting thing about kind of whether or not men now feel that they they can have it all Mm. you know one of the things that i've kind of realized i've got four kids they're young it's it's full on is that there is a basic conflict and i know you've grappled with this all your life there's a conflict between being the kind of parent you want to be and being really really ambitious Mm -hmm. and i think the way that a previous generation of men solved that is that they were just really ambitious and less of a parent um and the way i would solve it which is my kind of advice to a lot of young people i chat to about starting out their careers is at different moments through your life you got to turn up the intensity on some things and turn it down on others. I think, I don't know where I got this from. I've, I've, I had this image of a hob and you're like a chef cooking and you've got four hobs. There's your family life, your personal life and your health, your social life, and then your work. And in mm-hmm. your 20s, you know, your work is up to the max and your social life is up to the max and your family obligations are a bit lower. But now I've just hit 40 and like, you know, I'm living off the kind of embers of my having worked really hard for 15 years and I'm trying to turn that down a little bit because family is up to the to the top. So, yeah, I'm very, very different to my dad. I think in the end, one of my great sadness is I wish he'd seen more of my kids growing up. And I think that had he done so, he would have reflected that maybe his more traditional way of raising kids was not necessarily the best. 
But he had to do what he did to get you guys here. And and his great belief in education and his great belief in hard work has clearly borne, you know, enormous fruits, hasn't it? For you, certainly. So when, when how old was he when he died? He was 76. And I was, I was 38. So I've got this big thing about how I feel like the death of my, I mean, different people. And I know from your own life, you know, you had enormous traumatic events that would have made you think about this differently. But I... I really feel like I've just suddenly entered the second half of life. I feel like mm. it's two stages, you know, hence, you know, coming on the midpoint, obviously. <laughs> I feel like, you no, know, his death really, I mean, I was 38, but his death marked the end of childhood and the huge kind of hard psychological work that I'm doing now, which I, is only just beginning, is genuinely just trying to find a kind of purpose in what I do beyond making him proud. Was that your prime driver? think so mm. i think so and i think i think i don't know people call that a dad complex it's so interesting i've just literally on the day we're speaking i've got this interview going out with um ronnie o'sullivan and ronnie o'sullivan whose dad went to prison um when he was 16 when ronnie o'sullivan was 16 for murder racially aggravated murder pretty much the worst thing you can do ronnie o'sullivan who's very very close to his dad uh, more close than i was um when i was growing up he had this thing where as his dad was being sentenced to prison he walked out of the courtroom and said to someone tell my boy to win and Ronnie O'Sullivan breaks down as he's telling this story and you realize that so much of his career comes from this desire to fulfill mm-hmm. dad's wishes for him and you know it's not as <laughs> serious as that cause my dad didn't uh, murder anyone but I think I did have a very 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 strong sense of um, drive and ambition and ambition by the way which is a word that I sort of feel like should be rescued from being seen to be a bad you know grubby thing which kind of is about being sharp elbowed and putting other people down I've got no no desire to do that I just want to make the most of my life but I think that did come from um, my dad to a very big extent and the other thing it came from frankly is sport you know like you um, I wasn't quite good enough to be a gymnast for, um, for <laughs> my country sadly and I think it would have been quite embarrassing if I tried but I was a sport I am a sport fanatic and I genuinely had this moment in um, 1993 when uh, in early June, this peroxide blonde Australian called Shane Warne ambled up to the crease and then his first ball in Ashes cricket, the Ashes of the the great Australian England matches, um, he bowled the greatest delivery that has ever been bowled. And to me, all sporting history up until that point was but a prelude to that incredible moment. (laughs) It's the most most beautiful thing. This is called the ball of the century. It's the most beautiful thing. And I dedicated my childhood to being, um, trying to become England's Shane Warne. And I wasn't good enough. You know, you were good enough to make it. But you, you set you set your bar really high there. I know, <laughs> I, 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 and, I, and I've learned more from trying and failing. But um, yeah, yeah, my entire career in the media is a product of failure. You know, all I wanted was to bowl leg spin for England. I desperately, just desperately wanted to do it. And and my ambition was, you know, partly driven by Shane Warne looking incredibly cool. And it's a really weird thing when my dad died. That was like that was January last year. Um, and he was one of my two heroes growing up. And then the other was Shane Warne. And they both died mm-hmm. within a few weeks of each other. And it was this really weird sense of, it was like Shane Warne's death, which was shocking to me. It must have felt like a displacement. You were, you know, suddenly your your world and your thoughts about the world must have been in sharp focus about yeah. how you lived the rest of your life without those heroes. Yeah, it was like Shane Warne's death was like the confirmation almost that childhood was over. It's like, it's, it's up to you now. You've got to do this. Like, it's not about those idols. Sort Did of your the- wife notice a change in you? Well, I was very sad. 
And I am very sad. Um, I was very sad for a long time. Uh, we'd our third child, second daughter, was uh, just a few months old. My dad met um, her, and we've had a, another daughter since then. She was incredibly blessed um, to have, who's twelve weeks old. And my dad's name is in is in her uh, name, so he's always with her in a sense. Um, yeah, I think I I really lost. Um, a lot of my kind of personality for a long time. I mean, a lot of people said it takes two years. Um, it's coming up to two years and I, I still feel like I'm kind of wading through, uh, the thicket. I still feel quite sad. I still feel like I've lost some of that earlier ebullience and sort of, um, zeal. And it kind mm. of, a few different things happened at the same time. So I turned 40, my dad died. I just have got kids and you know, it's just this thing and you've got kids and you've got young kids and my heart's perfect back. storm, isn't it? But yeah. And it's, I mean, you must've had it when you had twins. I mean, were you what you're in your early thirties. Early thirties. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, but it's kind of, you've had a, quite a lot of big things though, I think come at you very quickly, haven't you? Um, yeah. and, and that, you know, that there's a lot that goes into, you know, your, your sense of who you are and what's your place in the world, all those things throughout those questions anyway. And then you've got this very public career as well, which, seems on the outside. I mean, you know, in this time, you've got one of the great jobs on telly, being the host of University Challenge has, has come to be, So, as well as all your other great work you're doing. So, you know, there's there's all these compartments to your life, isn't there? It's back to the hob, isn't it? Yeah, but it's weird. It, that's what people see. And what they don't know is kind of what's going on internally, which is a kind of profound turmoil about the point of it all. And I'm not saying I don't. Is this not meant to be sort of despondent? I'm generally a cheery bloke, as I hope midpoint listeners come to discover. But um, yeah, I mean, I've never said this in public, but and I we want to be very, very careful about how I say it for the obvious reasons because there's a lot of guidelines about how we talk about it. But I thought about not doing it. I want to be really clear, but I did think about suicide um, and God in a way that I've had never before, and I don't at all by that mean that I'd ever taken anything like action towards ending my life and you know by the way people listening to this who are in a feeling of despair should call someone and talk to them because the pain they'll cause their family you, talk, you thought about it as a concept as opposed I'll tell you to something, something very i'll tell you something very very specific frankly um which we should be careful about how we talk about because of the copycat effect but i was presenting the today program from um southampton can't remember why i think i did a piece on rishi sunak who's from there or something but and whenever you present the today program from outside of london you have this mad thing where you're walking through some very dark, rainy part of London, at, uh, of, uh, of Britain at sort of 3.15 in the morning. And I walked over a bridge, it was a train track. And uh, yeah, again, you know, anyone who's thinking about these things should immediately speak to someone. But I did think for the first time, and I'm not religious, um, I grew up in a religious family, I'm not religious at all. Um, I did think that there was a connection between ending my life and seeing my dad again, because all I ever wanted was to see my dad again. And that yearning, that sort of unbearable agony to be in the presence of someone that you've lost, it's, it's an unimaginable pain. And I did think about that a lot. Just to be really clear, I never actually would have taken any action. I'm not, I've never been what I call suicidal. But I made a connection in my mind between death and seeing someone again. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought, you know, I mean, religion is infinitely complicated. There's lots of different religions. But I did, I did understand something about the religious impulse in a way that and I've spent a lot of time thinking about religion and faith, but I did understand something about it, which I hadn't before, which is it would be so great. Would it, if it would be so great if like my dad was up there getting a little foot massage, reunited with his parents, 
you know, me getting ready to see me again. I love that thought. Sadly, I don't have that uh, faith, um, which has got lessons in itself. But yeah, I, you know, when, when you're someone who starts thinking those thoughts for the first time, just go back to your question. Yeah, my wife certainly saw um, a big, a big change. Did she or anybody who was close to you suggest that you should have some kind of grief counselling or speak to somebody? I did, and uh, it didn't work. <laughs> I, I really, um, I, I mean, so counselling is different to therapy. I had six sessions with a counsellor. I just cried through all of them. Um, and I think one of the things about grief is it's sui generis. I think everyone's grief is a very particular thing. Um, based on their own particular psychology and their own particular circumstances. And in my case, it's just that thing, which is, it's two things. One is you've got to wait for time to pass. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that I kind of, I've got this really weird thing, which is trying to keep hold of basically my old personality, which is driven, strategic, and where I, you know, my aim, my biggest aim in life is to try and be the nicest person I can be. So I set out every day to be as good, as noble as I can be. That was a big thing my dad always said, you know, always be noble. I try and spend, you know, about 30% of my non-family time helping young people to get into various different professions. And one of the big things that I wanted to do was to try and spread some love and for some good to come of that. So I've now got this weird thing. This is so weird. I've never spoken about this in public, but I've got this weird thing that if someone I know loses um, their parent, I write to them. So I just, I, so after the, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but after the Queen died, I wrote to the King um, and got one of those generic, uh, nice responses back. Um, just, yeah, there's people that you and I know in broadcasting, I won't mention their names, but I, I don't know them, but I wrote to them, um, you know, Michael Gove. Offering offering more than your deepest sympathies? Why do you think you're writing? To say to them, you're not alone, hope you're okay, time will help you, the pain will get better realize that other people have got through this and survived yeah that sort of thing um i do think being bombarded with love when you're going through grief is useful and i think being bombarded by a kind of slightly surprising love mm -hmm. is useful I'll probably do it partly as a therapy for myself if I'm i was going to say knowing that people think about uh, thinking about you is really comforting and probably knowing that they're going to be comforted is comforting for you, you know, knowing that you're, you're yeah. sending that out there. Yeah. Um, was, was, was his death um, a surprise, a shock? Was it, was it quite sudden? Yeah. I, I'd always thought, cause his parents lived to the 92 and 88 and that was in, you know, they're still pretty poor in India. I always thought he'd be around for Much a long longer. time. Yeah. And it was yeah. the first thing that just, I mean, yeah, there's other things in my life that hadn't gone to plan, like failing to become a cricket player my wife and I went through, yeah, it's not that funny. I was, I was heartbroken at the time. I know, but Gosh, when you look back funny. now you in the scheme of things and you go... You could be looking at England's greatest leg spin here, Gabby. Yeah, and you may yet, you may yet. Listen, bro broadcasting's gain is cricket's loss, obviously. Oh, I'm not uh, sure about that. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we, um, again, not really spoken about it publicly, but my wife and I went through years and years and years of, of horrendous IVF. Um, uh, and related uh, horrors uh, and we ended up very blessed obviously but my parents dying I always knew it was going to be um, very very difficult and it happened a good decade and a bit before I thought it would he basically mm. went in it was the um, it was when Omicron was raging um, he went in with um, uh, pneumonia lungs filling up he didn't really look after himself he had type 2 diabetes um, and he's basically in intensive care kept developing infections and his kidneys couldn't flush it out um, and I feel very very strongly and the one thing I'm going to slightly annoy your amazing midpoint community by saying is that i find the idea 
of allowing yourself to get type 2 diabetes when you've got grandchildren not good not no. good don't get it do something about it i was gonna say has that given you um a different focus health wise or were you always on that track i'm completely completely transformed so um i've always been overweight um shane warren was overweight so i thought it was all right um always been overweight and um i'm a binger when it comes to most things i mean i don't drink very much but when i do i have a good time when i eat i've always been a big binger and i've sort of quite yo-yoed a lot um yeah i've completely transformed my have you done it well you're going to tell me off because you know more about this than i do but i find that a pretty militant approach to no carbs really really does help i've gone very largely plant-based i don't eat breakfast you're gonna i'm looking at no you so it's basically fasting you do a bit of fasting i do fasting and i tend to have one or two big meals i cut out most red meat um i just don't i just don't eat it works fasting works for a lot of men my husband's started fasting he doesn't have breakfast anymore i I still do but um and different people have come on the podcast who have different theories about fasting and the main thing is that all you're doing really is restricting your window of calorie intake and that's fine because as long as your body and your health can survive you're healthy then you're you know then you're okay as long as you're getting the nutrients in that period but also i've got a real thing that i more than most people which is obviously something i'm not i think you probably tell i'm not uh hugely vain but i i really wear it on my skin so if i have a lot of sugar get Mm. spots i get Mm. kind of blotchier skin redder skin and i feel like my skin your skin looks great. Well, it's a real barometer of my health. But I mean, my God, I, if you know, God, how does it look? Is it all right? Yeah, it doesn't look too yeah, bad. Yeah, it looks, it so, looks well. So yeah. zero sugar uh, most of the time. I, I have a huge, I'm all for that. Uh, you're all for that, yeah? I'm all for that, and, yeah. And I try, I cycle in, I try and do a fair bit of exercise. I'm just not yet at the stage where, so I've got this acronym. I've got acronym for everything, obviously, in life. I've got this acronym for like live, getting to 100. And my acronym is SEED. Sleep, exercise, early detection early detection and diet now the early detection mm-hmm. i've just hit 40 so i'm gonna i'm gonna hope that i don't um have to get too much screening though my dear mate george alagaya who died not long ago feels very mm. strongly men should get screened mm. uh, for cancers you know quite close to 50 i mean how old was kenny when he got his prostate done he was 50 well he was um fi- it was his 50th year that he had his prostate removed and it was he was 48 when his psa was oh, first my goodness said was high but you know men uh from asia and um, uh, Afro-Caribbean men should probably be thinking about it a little bit earlier because their PSA can go higher earlier, right. apparently. So um, so if your heritage is, you know, in any of those groups, then have a think, which obviously yours is. Yeah. So, you know, you might want to get screened a bit earlier. Get lots and lots of different screening. And um, the exercise, I feel like once I've got slightly older kids, I would do mostly by watching slightly terrifying uh, Instagram videos that you put out of you doing all sorts of incredible yoga, which makes me feel very inadequate. <laughs> is it? Sorry about that. Is it? Is it now your life? Is it ingrained, or are you still feeling like you've kind of you're wearing a cloak of health, and you're not? It's not quite your skin yet. Do you feel like it's your life oh, now? That is such a good question. No, my, it's not yet my life because my life is frankly getting through the newborn stage and it's a weird thing about the newborn thing because i'd realize how extraordinarily you know unlikely and how lucky we are to have four kids but you know my son is seven and he's just at this age where it's just about sport and it's so wonderful 
and you have a very different thing with him to when you have a newborn where it is just frankly to begin with I mean they're just this I love her Nesta she's beautiful but you know she's just a glorified gut basically with a smiley face on top and so my life is about supporting the family getting through that being around for my kids and I feel like when they're just a little bit older and we all do the same thing so everyone starts running ultra marathons in their sort of late 40s I mean um I just feel when I'm a little bit older it will become everything it'll become everything but I've definitely fundamentally changed how are you going to bring to your children that drive and ambition your dad was so successful instilling in you and that sense of responsibility while maintaining, you know, that incredible love and unconditional support and the feeling that there was something that he didn't quite manage as a, as a father with that hands-on role. Do you think it's possible to do both? I don't. And I'm grateful. I'd be grateful for your advice, um, particularly in the domain of sport. Right. So my big thing growing up was be the best I, obviously I was going to play football for England and then turned out I wasn't very good at football it's going to be David you keep laughing when I mention my sporting greatness it's just the sincerity <laughs> it's the sincerity with which you deliver those plans which is I, I, I you know even at 40 years old you still yeah, it yeah. still feels like it was a real plan well I'm just I'm just beginning to give up on that I was going to I was, I was going to beat Michael Schumacher at F1 Michael Schumacher was this huge hero I just sport 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 and it's so funny because I mean I know you think about this a lot and you must have thought about it for years in the context of um, your amazing son Ruben but I see the dedication that is required for people to make it in sport and I know from my own experience that um, you hear about the one in a thousand that becomes mm. a professional you don't hear about the 999 that were the best player at their school the best player at their club but who never made it and so I kind of know it's dangerous from my own experience to kind of put all your eggs in one basket. And yet I can't help thinking that there is nothing so cool as sporting glory and that I have a kind of duty to try and give my children the chance to have a shot at that. Because I think sporting glory is like the ultimate. See Mo Farah on the back stretch. You know. Oh, but, but but as you say, it's not just one in a thousand, it's one in hundreds of thousands, yes, isn't it, who yes. get that kind of glory. And actually what your kids will get out of sport is so much more that they will take yeah, into the rest of their life. And hopefully they won't at 40 feel that they, they were a failed Premier League footballer. They'll just remember their great sports days or being part of a team. And, and if they're good at sport, that, you know, those successes and learning from those failures as well. But I find it hard... I mean, you've actually to be average. <laughs> no, yeah, maybe it's a bit of that. But you could talk. You, you represented your country for goodness sake. You're married to Kenny Logan. I mean, I find it hard not to be all in on that stuff. You know, I, I interviewed mm. Djokovic, right? And the intensity of the man, right? The just the laser. But he his intensity transcends even intense sports people. I mean, he is. Yeah. Of all sports people in the world in any sport, I would say he's up there in in the you know in the top kind of one percent of top 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 sports people's intensity. I kinda, he's I he's extraordinary. That. I kind of <laughs> love that. I kind of love that, and I kind of see. And this is true beyond sport as well. You know, you chat to Bill Gates, and it's quite interesting. It's of all the the these sort of icons that I interview, there quite a lot of them um, sort of self-identify as being on a kind of autistic spectrum. They have a very 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 strong ability to focus um on an obsessive ability to focus and i mean the reason that relates back to ambition is that yeah i'm trying to I, my i don't want to project at all 
on my beloved children and I want them to enjoy above all their life. And I want it's, to- it's so interesting because I'm just thinking about your dad and how proud he must have been the day that you got your acceptance from Cambridge. And, you know, that, you know, he knew that his, his kind of plan for you was on its way, that you were going to one of the top universities in the world and you'd achieved all of this. And, but he came from such humble beginnings and such a humble background that, that, any of your successes were going to be great. Whereas your, you know, your kind of idea of success that he's built in yeah. you, you know, can you go, and, and it sound, this sounds very pejorative, but can you go backwards? Do you know what I'm saying? I don't That's, mean backwards, no, don't in terms mean. Of, but if your kids are really happy and have great lives, but they don't necessarily become the greatest at whatever they do, yeah. you know, does that, does that feel like you're not carrying on yeah, the no, legacy? Yeah, I think exactly about that. So I, I, you know, I've sort of probably created this little narrative in, in my mind that connects my mum and dad's, yeah, not just my dad, my mum as well, they're kind of very, very um, impoverished beginnings in a different world to some place that I want to get to. And, you know, my fundamentally my kids are growing up in North London and there are, you know, groups at the school that kind of email around or put on WhatsApp that they're worried about air quality or whatever. You know, it's a different it's a different world and they're not going to have that narrative. Yeah, it's a, it's a total cliche, but what you want above all is for your kids to be healthy and happy and to be good people. And the thing that I don't won't compromise on is demanding that they realise how lucky they are, that they give back, that they've got a reputation in their classroom for being kind and generous and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm not sure. I, th- I think that that's going to... Maybe Charlotte will have a say in all of this. Well, she'll have her influence. the main say in all of this, uh, <laughs> Charlotte. And she's, yeah, she was the first in her family to go to, to university. So she's from Devon. She's from a very, very, very different background. And we're quite... I don't know if you and Kenny are like this, but we're, we're kind of opposites. She's like a classy, very clever, very thoughtful, very kind country girl. And I'm from South London. And and I'm kind of, you know, my heroes were Del Boy and Shane Ward growing up. And I'm kind of in that kind of uh, mould. Opposites attract. I mean, you've, you've obviously made a, you know, a really successful family together, a successful life together. Yeah. And you're, you give each other perhaps the things that the other person isn't you know quite equipped with so interesting you said it so on the day before a week before um our son our eldest son was born randomly the independent newspaper i worked to just shut and um some of your listeners will know there's this legendary business pairing in london restaurants called corbin and king um it's chris corbin and jeremy king Mm. and a bunch of different restaurants and jeremy king i used to be a restaurant critic in a former life and i know jeremy king and i had dinner with him and we we were talking about the fact that i was about to become a parent and he had this um hope he won't mind me saying, but he had this kind of formula where he said the relationships at work are the relationships that respect and maintain a sense of difference. And it's easier if you really are different, if you really are opposite people, if you really are from Devon and South London, if you really are introvert and extrovert. Um, And you've got to maintain that difference because apart from being a kind of um, attractive thing, it allows you to kind of retain your identity. Whereas the relationships that might struggle more i mean this is a big generalization but relationships that might struggle more where you kind of you end up trying to make the other person the same person Mm -hmm. and you end up Mm -hmm. being too similar and you lose that point of difference so even if you're not particularly opposite i mean we we are different kenny and i in the sense that he grew up on a farm in rural scotland and i grew up you know in cities and um so we had very different backgrounds my dad was a footballer and you know his dad was a lifelong farmer and worked every single day of his life i think he had literally christmas day off you know and never went on family holidays because of that and because of the animals so we're fundamentally our backgrounds are different but actually even if you're not massively different you shouldn't want to change the other person should you you know because you fell in love with that person for the reasons that they are the way they are. I always say to my kids about when they're, you know, they're in early 
you know, kind of stages of girlfriend, boyfriend relationships, the person you're with should elevate you and make you feel better about yourself and, and make you feel like you, anything is possible. Not, you know, no, never feel like you're half the person that you were going into that relationship. That for me is massive red flag, isn't it? If you never feel good enough. And wanting them to flourish, yeah. It also mm. helps. I really fancy my wife. That's also very, yeah. I mean, you know, this is very healthy to hear all of this. Um, sadly, we couldn't get you and Claire, our expert today, together at the same time. So we're just going to go and listen to a chat I had with her, which is all about basically an, an, a topic which I'm sure you've discussed on the Today programme, that uh, the uh, late baby boomers and early Gen Xs uh, are facing a real crisis when it comes to things like pension and having to work longer and the expectation of kind of how their their later lives are going to be. So uh, let's go listen to Claire, shall we? Back by popular demand on the midpoint, uh, Claire Barrett, who's economist for the FT and host of the FT Money Clinic podcast, is back on the midpoint. And you also appear on many other media outlets. We bumped into each other on Lorraine just the morning after the last time you were on the midpoint as well. Claire, you're a busy lady. We did. We did. But it's great to be able to normalise talking about money across all channels, because certainly we all need to get used to you know, get over the, the, the stigma and any um, mm. taboo, because if we're not going to talk about it, then this is where problems can really start to bite. And you certainly do that. You talk about it so brilliantly. And today it's quite a specific issue we want to address. Um, recently, the Centre for Better Ageing study was out and an issue which I think perhaps doesn't always get loads of attention because there is this perception that late baby boomers and early Gen Xs are all fine. Mm. Property owners with pensions, they'll be fine later on. Well, actually, what this study said was that that's not the case. And they are fast becoming the generation who are going to find themselves in real tricky situations with poor health, poor finances, an increased risk of loneliness and isolation. But it's the money aspect of all of this I want to talk about and the fact that poverty is on the rise in this group. Why is this Is this the case? Well, the group of people that we're talking about here, as you say, are the late baby boomers. So people who are in their 60s now or coming up to their 60s. And a lot of the reason for that is because, simply put, not all baby boomers are vastly wealthy. Now, it's certainly true that as a cohort, they are more likely to have benefited for, from more generous pensions um, in the workplace and also from that big uplift in house prices that we've seen over uh, the past few decades. So even if they didn't have a particularly brilliant pension, they might be able to take some equity um, out of their, their property and fund part of their retirement that way. But we've kind of had this golden age of retirement that has developed since the 1960s, where people have been um, saving more for retirement, not themselves, but because the state and their employer has put greater provision aside for them. And that's what's led to the saga generation, you know, the idea of retirement being a, a time in our lives where, we, you know, we relax and go on holiday. And really, what we're seeing here is that dream um, dissipate for, for many people because they simply don't have the generous pensions that others in the same cohort might do. So a little bit of jargon for you here, DB and DC. These are the two basic types of pension um, that a workplace um, might provide you with. DB, defined benefit, also known as final salary, clues in the name. When you retire, it keeps 
giving you an income like a salary. What jobs do that? Is it too late for me to get one? (laughs) It's not too late. So the the jobs nowadays that are doing that are basically the public sector. So if you're somebody who is, um, you know, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, but even then they're not as generous now um, as they were. But lots and lots of private companies used to um, offer them. And the problem was people are living longer. So in many cases, like we heard at the the BBC was in the news um, a couple of weeks ago, some of these generous final salary pensions that they're paying out for people who left the BBC decades ago could be more than the salaries of younger staff um, who, who are working in the newsroom. So private companies have responded by cutting back DB, moving to what's known as DC or defined contribution, where you basically build up a pot of money which you have to decide how to spend in your retirement. And ultimately, it's exhaustible. It can run out. And I think that what we're seeing a lot... So, to be clear, Claire, when you die with mm. a DB, your pension dies. So, you say say you retired at 65, or 60 even, some of these people would have retired. Mm, wouldn't they? But, mm. um, and you're on a final salary pension. In theory, that could be carrying on to you, coming to you until you're 100 years old. Yeah. Absolutely. In some cases, there will be a benefit for um, your spouse or dependent children um, who, who, who are still young. But yes, with the defined contribution pension, which is by far what most workers today will have, that's the sort of pension I have, you pay in, your employer pays in, and then when you retire, you have a sum of money, which on the whole, in recent years, people are keeping invested um, in the stock market. They're trying to live off the income that those investments have producing, which in itself is really challenging because we're not used to being our own investment managers. Um, And there's a a real advice gap problem. The number of people who want financial advice, the number of people who can actually afford it, uh, it's about 10 million people um, stuck in the middle, according to a big report from Boring Money recently, an ironically named um, consumer research company because their research is anything but boring. So I think a lot of people are making poor decisions when they come to retire. From the age of 55, you can technically get your hands on um, cash inside your pension, your lump sum, um, more than that if you want. And I think a lot of people are not appreciating how much longer they're going to live for and be economically inactive, you know, not be able to work, rely on the pension. So there could be some kind of early rejoicing of spend um, and also people retiring earlier than 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 they can perhaps um, afford to because we just don't have the um, the same amounts of money that the generation before us had but we still have the same expectations um, about what retirement might look like what we could afford to do and how much support there is in the system if we are dealt a curveball and health being the biggest one just physically can't work um, and have to retire earlier maybe than you wanted to and haven't got the option of going back to work to to top up um, any money you had and then another really big one is divorce you know you could be all right with uh, a partner have owned a house have paid off the mortgage but then if you decide to split up the silver splitters as the trend is known because older divorce is on the rise then you've got to then find the money for two Um, separate households and life's going to get a lot more expensive and complicated. What are the answers, do you think? I mean, obviously, 
you're encouraging people to think about this earlier and earlier so that you, you, you prepare for that. But do we just have to reframe our idea of when work stops? Because the, there's another part of this. And funny enough, um, you know, I've been looking into this to talk to Amol about, which is that our population, our natural population will start declining in 2025. Mm. And our total population with migration added is looking at potentially uh, declining from 2058, right? So we've got a declining population which means we haven't got enough people to do the work that's there right now, uh, let alone what's you know what's to come. So, do we have to start thinking about? And, and this is a real midlife conversation. Mm. Is it shifting our ideas in midlife and thinking right? Okay, well, I'm I'm not going to be retiring at sixty five, so I'm going to think about doing something else, and I'm going to have to you know going to do it a bit longer. Is that a reality? It absolutely is the reality, and I think a lot of people don't want to retire. And also, retirement has changed. It's not this hard stop that it used to be. I think people want to carry on, um, you know, working part time or maybe in a sort of consultants um, consultancy capacity if they're lucky enough to to be able to do that. Of course, it does depend a lot on the kind of work that you do you know if mm. you're a bricklayer or a school teacher because that's a, a very physical job being a school teacher which is why um, most school teachers do retire um, at 60 because standing in front of a classroom full of kids shouting at them is, is, is knackering um, but there are other jobs, um, you know, journalism, uh, for, for example, broadcasting, sitting at a desk, um, you know, you just need a phone and a computer, you kind of do it from anywhere and work flexibly. It's much more possible. So I think we will see um, people pivot their careers as they get older to get into a form of work that they could keep doing for longer. But also people who are maybe financially better off, um, you know, they have had the benefit of um a, a good few years of, of, of earning a generous pension that they would just need to top up. They may think, well, actually, we want to do something different. We want to be in a job where we're giving back. Um, you know, we, we mentioned teaching. There's a very famous organisation called Now Teach that my former FT colleague Lucy Calloway set up. She was yeah, a, we've had we've had Lucy. You on. Know, a real yeah. inspiration. She's getting lots of people from who've retired from city jobs in their fifties to spend the last decade um, of their lives teaching. A friend of ours did that actually. He was very high up in one of the big consultancy firms and had a fantastic career and then he retrained to become an economics teacher oh. in his late 50s and um, and found it incredibly rewarding. Well I'm glad you mentioned the consultancy firms because big story in the FT um, in the last couple of weeks has been um, about EY formerly known as Ernst & Young. Now one of their top British partners at the age of 57 um, he didn't get the job of running the global firm. And one of the reasons why is because EY has got a compulsory retirement age of 60. Now, this was a really, really widely read story in the FT, I suspect, because our readers tend to um, you know, be, be, a be, little bit older. be a little bit older, um, more senior in their jobs. But also, it's just such an arbitrary rule to say mm. 60 um, and, and you're out the door. I think that... I mean, the president of the United States of America <laughs> well, quite. would have... Been, I mean, <laughs> if you look at him and his main challenger, that would kind of uh, buck the trend slightly. And not, that, not saying that it's a good idea to be going into your 80s being the most important man in uh, America, but... Um, 60 seems incredibly young well, to be it does. working in those companies. And certainly, you know, being in a modern workplace, you do hear a lot about diversity and inclusion. Some people would call it wokeism. I certainly wouldn't. I think it's a real um, force for good. But one thing that's missing, I think, from 
DNI policies is ageism. And ageism seems to be the last kind of form of discrimination that it is possible to practice. Now, you know, we all need to invest in ourselves, to upskill, to look at what's happening, to think, would I be better off in my late career shifting to a different department, thinking strategically, where could I get those um, plum kind of consultancy jobs? How could I shift into a more freelance um, lifestyle as I age? You know, these are all things that need to be front of mind, um, you know, when you are in, in your 50s. But the other pressure, um, which especially affects women, of course, is caring. Caring for older family members, maybe who are affected by dementia or um, just disabilities. I mean, we all know about the huge gaping holes in the social care net and often it's older women who are not working and fulfilling that obligation or at the other end of the scale if you are blessed with grandchildren um, as I am my stepdaughter gave birth to twins a year and a half ah. ago and her mum and me and her dad are kept very busy um, which is a joy to, to, to look after them but her mum especially is working less in order to look after the twins more, and yeah. she's in her 50s and you cut your hours, you cut your pay, but you're also cutting your pension contributions because they're a percentage of, of your pay. So in, in, in if you're a woman and you've suffered with the gender pay gap and the gender pensions gap throughout your career, taken a, a career break to raise a family, then you know your pension is the one that really needs that big boost um, at the end. You should be paying in more in, in, in your 50s. So there's, there's no easy answers to the kinds of choices that families are being forced into. But I think the first step is awareness, You know, greater awareness that this is a problem that's not going to go away and for it to be part of the discussion conversation I think needs to be much more front and centre doesn't it for people to really think about. Final question which kind of relates to this, it definitely does relate to this but I'm thinking about mm. my kids right, um, they're 18 and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will have family kind of you know younger people in their family in their lives and we've discussed before kind of how difficult it is to persuade somebody in their 20s in their first job to make serious pension contributions what would you be saying to any young people now and if, if we're going to go and pass advice on as listeners to this podcast might be doing um, what should they be doing thinking about that? Okay, well, I've actually just made a video for every staff member in the FT um, to watch about this, because now is the time of year where you can actually increase um, the contributions into our company pension fund. Um, and so I've been talking, dressed up as a, as a magician with a top hat and a wand, about the magic of free money. Now, you say pensions and people go, oh, old people. But you say free money um, and all of a sudden they're, they're, they're interested. So the key question... Um, if you don't know the answer to, or if your kids don't know the answer to, they should get onto the HR department, is what is the level of matching on the company pension scheme? Because all too often in the in the private sector we're talking about, there'll be a range of what you can pay in. And if you pay in, say, 4% of your salary, your company might match that with 4% into your pension or higher. Um, but if you paid in 5% or 6%, they might give you 5% or 6% on top um, of, your, of your salary. So you need to work out, like, what's the most bang um, I can get from my buck? And often people don't realise um, that, that there's a range and that paying that extra in doesn't cost as much as you think in your pay packet because everything that's going into your pension you're not having to pay tax on that money. So you pay a pound into your pension, the whole pound goes in, it's invested tax-free, 
when you take the money out in retirement, a bit of tax will come off, but a quarter of it will be tax-free. So it's pretty tax-efficient. Whereas if you had that pound in your pay slip, then national mm. insurance, tax, everything so is going to come ask off. So go what ask what the matching is. But think about it. Really think about it. Lifetime ISAs, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Small amounts. Have a, have a, have really a think. small amounts when you're young, because they can grow and compound over time, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. That's where the power is. So even quite small contributions at the start of your working life can mean that you won't have to play catch up when you're my age. Now, I didn't start my pension until I was 30, um, which was a bit late. And so I am having to save a lot more now as a mid-lifer um, than I would have done otherwise had I ticked the box when I was 20, before I was a personal finance journalist and um, preached about this stuff. Which you'll be doing forever <laughs> and ever and ever. Claire, thank you so much. Um, I know you've got a super busy day today, so thank you so much for, for chatting to us. And uh, we will hopefully see you very soon. Let's hope so. Thanks for having me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. feels to me like you're in a kind of period of time and it's a couple of years maybe three years it might last where there is not so much a midlife crisis but there's a midlife kind of change going on and all these factors have contributed obviously that we've talked I, about I, would, to, I mean yeah I, it's quite, quite funny I see mates of mine who are 10, 15, 20 years old to talk about midlife crisis as something that happens when you're um, 60 odd so my mate Nick Robinson uh, at the BBC saw the journalist Robert Peston and um, Ed Balls uh, and another brilliant broadcaster called John Wilson. They're all, they did this thing where they've got a band. I forget what it's called. Centrist Dad. That's it. They're called Centrist Dad. And they were playing. Ed uh, Balls was on. He talked about it, actually. Ed, yeah. well, he was on the recent episode, wasn't he? Yeah. He was talking about it and they all got together. And Nick was sort of saying classic midlife crisis. And I was thinking, these guys are, yeah, Robert Peston's in his 60s. And I'm like, that's, I mean, <laughs> no disrespect to Robert Peston, but he ain't making it to 120 unless, like, you know, Elon Musk really does extend the, uh, the human uh, uh, longevity by that much. So that I've, no, I'm definitely something akin to a midlife crisis. And I don't, I don't mean that in a kind of, um, trite way i mean it is the this confluence of different things which is suddenly having a lot of kids the kids being young my dad dying which is the biggest thing hitting 40 yeah it's a real kind of reappraisal and it sounds like while work is really important to you and you still have ambition perhaps it doesn't figure as much in terms of being your identity as it was when you were in your 20s i think that's right and i think that i partly think that it might a kind of zealous focus on work is something that kind of might come back I definitely think when I look back over the last 20 years, and I'm 10 years older than you, that work at various points has meant more and less. 
you know what I mean? So it's, at certain times it means a lot and I'm really proud of it. And at other times it kind of is just something I do. And, you know, the other stuff, as you talked about, your analogy was the hobs, you know, and that that isn't the most important thing right now, or it might be the, you know, or it might feel like something I want to give it a go at again. You know, I kind of get yeah. periods where I feel like I get my ambition chops back. Yeah. And uh, have you had Richard Osman on the podcast? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, taught, yeah. I haven't heard that episode and I'll definitely search it out because I'm a big fan of his. And when my dad was in intensive care, he did um, his Desert Island Discs. And he talked with about just before his last song. I found it very useful because I was driving south you know, from north to south London, and you know it was um, tough, tough, tough mm. time. And he talked about how um, all that rocket fuel that he had in his twenties uh, had gone, and now he knew what he was doing. He was with, um, he was, I think, on his second marriage, he was with the woman that he was going to spend the rest of his life with. He knew what he was about. He's had this huge success with his books, and just something about that phrase rocket fuel really resonated with me because i look back now as i'm sure you do um uh, your sort of mid to late 20s i think my god i had some rocket fuel man um, <laughs> i mean my i worked so so hard and when i talk mm. to a lot of young people as i do about work-life balance i do think it's really important to understand one of the things about work-life balance obviously matters and you've got to get you know you've got to look after yourself and not damage your mental health but i do think it's easier to have a work-life balance if you've worked really hard so that you can focus on your life later on, mm -hmm. you know, mm. and any, you know, I'm doing with, for instance, university challenge, I'm doing a genuine, 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 can't believe this is happening. Total dream job, profound humility. When the music plays in the studio, I think about my dad and I think this is amazing. And the reason I'm doing it is because for about 12 years, I worked harder than anyone I know. Um, mm in the world of newspapers and it allowed me to do various different things. So, And so I wonder if your age and your experience has given you a better way of dealing with any kind of, I wouldn't say criticism because actually it's more controversy when one Googles your name, you know, you, there's various, and I wonder if that's also a slightly racist thing, actually, that um, I think there is the certain newspapers that have picked up on things that have happened with you, interviews perhaps where there's been controversy and they have projected in a way if it is if it's negative, but actually it's just journalism, right? Um, that that you've been doing, and they've put that out there as it's some kind of negativity to the BBC because of certain things that have happened. I mean, talking there's royal stories and things like that, Big things time. you've said about the royals, and and do you, when those things happen now, are you better at dealing with them than you were in the past, or have you always been really good? No, I've not always been really good. Um, I have taken and do take criticism um, personally. One of the things I'm, I've definitely got better at it. I do find it really dispiriting how much falsehood there is online. Mm. Obviously, there's trolls and but I ignore them and all these anonymous, awful people, Andrew 642312, who, um, yeah, who yeah. has a go at you. But what I find really difficult is that so much of what is written, and you must find this to a much greater degree, but so much of what is written about me um, for instance, what's on my Wikipedia page, which is just replete with errors, it's just falsehood. It's just it's just inaccurate. I didn't say X. This thing that you're suggest some person is suggesting happened didn't actually happen. Um, there's a very 
good explanation for why this bad thing that happened, which wasn't my fault, but was someone else's, mm. but I don't want to land them. But, but when you're put as the centre of that story, when it's nothing to do with you, yeah, um, and it's and, that, on, and it's on a you know uh, you know the Daily Mail or whatever website. I find inaccurate journalism very hard. I mean, you must find the same. I mean, I, I, mm. I haven't googled you recently, but I mean, I imagine half the stuff that's written about you, or maybe you've got to a stage and maybe because of what you do and you're so sort of venerated that people don't do that stuff anymore but maybe no it's still I mean I had to I had to take action just a year ago against some national newspapers because of a completely you know made up story basically and did you find it worked it worked uh, well, we, we had a positive outcome. Yeah, we got um, we got our apology and that. But this was and damages. But this was this was really serious. Do you know what I mean? It was it was. Uh, sometimes you just let stuff go and you let things you know kind of wash over you because actually, you know, it's not worth it. But then there are certain things that you just feel like no, I want to. I'm not going to fight for this. I'm not going to let this, you know, just just go because it's it's wrong. And as you say, it's you know it's this in, in the increase of this stuff. And now I look at things and I don't know what to believe when you read half these things because. You you think, well, I know what's been said about me that's completely factuous. Yeah. And the fact that it lives forever online, that's the thing. The fact that so much of this stuff lives forever online. I mean, I'm very, very, very concerned about the state of public life, for want of a better word, and our ability to actually have conversations with each other. It's a really weird paradox, isn't it? We've got better technology than ever before for communicating one to one or one to seven billion. And yet we seem to have lost the ability to talk to each other in public. And I think that that's kind of, I think those two things are really related. I was just reading this morning in the Times um, a story, and I can't remember the details of it now because I was skim reading before I went in the gym, but it was to do with university students being taught the art of chit-chat <laughs> because, they, because they've, they've lost the ability to just chit-chat. They can be, you know, on a million dating apps or, you know, they can have Instagram friends, but the actual kind of the art of chit-chat. And that took me back a bit. I thought, Jesus, that's, you know, that is something that, we really are going to have to have a look at, aren't we? Yeah, I, really, I really think, and then like this is obviously take, taken to another level with AI, which is a great um, sort of passion of mine. I really think there's a profound danger that we're getting our relationship with technology wrong. You know, as a species, the thing that allowed us to become godlike is that we use technology to master our environment, to become sovereign and to control our circumstances. And there really, really is a sense, I don't mean this in some weird, spooky, dystopian way, but there really mm. is a sense in which the relationship between humanity and technology has flipped. And to some extent, mm. we're kind of almost being controlled, like as puppets mm. by technology. Mm. If you think, just give you one stat to, um, uh, to sort of show that, a huge amount of YouTube, YouTube's got over two and a half billion people that spend over an hour a day on YouTube, and I saw a stat a couple of years ago. Now I haven't checked if it's still true, saying that something like seventy percent of YouTube viewing isn't what you initially go to search for on YouTube, but it's what the algorithm throws up, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when you put that together with the fact that the algorithm throws up um, videos which are kind of the most engaging, so the most emotional, the most anxiety-inducing, the most fearful, um, you know. So I'm obsessed with boxing. Uh, if I go and look up some boxing, very soon I'm getting the time that Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear and then I'm getting lost in a, in a, in a wormhole mm. of nasty stuff. And you think that is two and a half billion people spending nearly an hour a day on something that algorithms have decided they should do. That's, that's, mm. not, that's not mind control in some weird, spooky, alien sense. And imagine how much of that as well that they're looking at 
is not fact checked or hasn't been through any kind of, you know, Ed poll. This is this is stuff that, that you don't know where it's coming from and who's who's yeah. feeding you this stuff. And doesn't that doesn't that I mean I kind of part of my job on Radio Four is interviewing politicians for a living. And one of the things I've really tried to do, really tried to do, is be mindful of the frustration they must feel at all the inaccurate nonsense that's mm. written about them. Mm. We've covered so, and we have we've kind of scratched the surface on lots of things. But I think we had a you know a really interesting chat about your dad and your grief, which is an area which I'm you know I thank you so much for being so honest because you know it is I think one of those still taboo subjects. We discussed this on the midpoint you know quite a lot. We've had experts come on and talk about grief, and I think we've got to do better as a society. I think in terms of how we frame that conversation. Well, you know a lot about it. So if we are going to do better, a lot of it will come from you directing that conversation. So, um, I mean, thank you for having me on. Thank you for being thank such you. a good listener. And I feel like I've, I've wrapped on far no, too it's much. Been, it's been great to chat to you. And, uh, you know, I, I think what you're doing work-wise is fantastic. You've got such an interesting, from, from the, you know, from somebody who does, does a very similar job, you've got such an interesting kind of um, portfolio of work at the moment, haven't you? And um, more power to you because you've worked so hard to get there. I think that's the thing that you show. I haven't even, one thing I was going to talk to you about, which you could probably quickly uh, sneak in, is your um, documentaries you've made to do with social mobility. And um, I, had, I can't remember the name of the 2019 one. Um, how to break into the elite. Break into the elite. That's it. Yeah, which I loved um, because you did a really great job of kind of um, showing kind of how ridiculous certain kind of practices are and how people get to you know be in those positions and how how ridiculous the elite is in many ways. You know that it that it kind of has this stranglehold on certain practices and certain industries. Uh, do you think social mobility is getting better? Is it is it going to be easier? for the next generation to because of technology and because of all the things we've talked about perhaps it's getting better in some professions but worse in others there's some there are some worlds like law finance and um, even parts of the media which um, have tried to make great strides but really really haven't and the one thing i'd say is that of all the different types of kind of protected characteristics uh, gender sexuality ethnicity disability neurological diversity Class often gets overlooked, and I'm not saying that because I want to pretend in any way to be some sort of proletarian hero. I'm really, really not. It's just the thing about classes, it's hard to see. So if you looked down at the BBC newsroom, you could probably tell the gender divide, you could probably tell something about the disabilities, um, uh, you could probably tell something about kind of the ethnic uh, breakdown. Mm. You wouldn't be able to tell how many people uh, were the first person in their family to go to university or grew up on a council estate. So it's kind of hard to see class changes. You know, I grew up somewhere between upper working class and lower middle class economically, but immensely privileged because I grew up in London to a part of an amazing family. I'm now wealthy, really proud of it. My class has changed. We're awkward about class. We, we mm. find it difficult to talk about. So I think class feels like the last taboo when we talk about all this stuff. And it is just really, really hard to change. It's a kind of big and fundamental part of being British. It's all these little mannerisms, these little kind of the, the amount of weight we put on accent and how people dress and all that kind of thing. And in a small way, I'm trying to at least raise awareness of it a little bit. But the main thing I was trying to do with those documentaries is make people realise, which is where my great kind of charitable interests have come, that small interventions on kids who are 16 to 21 can make a massive difference in turning a life that was going to go down this bad path into a life that goes down this good one instead. And I just think we've got to be so much better at giving kids the right information and the right inspiration at 16, 17, 18 
1920 because with that information and inspiration they can lead much better lives that's kind of my i love helping young people that's the thing that really animates me and those documentaries were a kind of love letter to them i think well um i hope that you continue to to work in that field because your passion i think will be you know so important to inspire so many more kids and i I totally agree with you i was a pioneer which is what you call somebody who's the first in their family to go to university and i used to be chancellor of leeds trinity university which has one of the highest percentages of pioneer kids um in the country and uh, you know those those kids the first to to kind of step out and and do that you know are so important we've got to really encourage them to dream big very quickly say but you're a veteran pioneer because you're a pioneer in broadcasting. When I got into TV years ago, people would always say, look to Gabby Logan. I mean, when we're talking about incredible people that broke down boundaries. If I think about kind of what I remember seeing you on TV, this is all completely surreal to me. I find it mad that I'm even talking to you. When I remember seeing you on TV and there was this, you're now kind of up there with the kind of gods of broadcasting. Oh, was, stop it. But there was this moment, <laughs> you are, you are, you know, and there, but there was this moment when it was not preordained that women in particular would break into sports 20 years ago and i think that you know there are a lot of people i know young people who look up to you and i i know you speak to them a lot and i know you do a lot to support young people but i don't think you should do but listen this isn't that a positive how you know things can change yeah. so you know all those things you're talking about as well hopefully um we will see more kids from backgrounds that aren't typical kind of you know realizing their potential and uh running the country and doing you know great things at the top of industry um well ended in a hopeful way yes. which i think is important i'm sorry if i was um, a bit morbid and down about no like that. not I'm at all not at all they're really important topics and uh, you know thank you for you know for opening i feel like i having read about you as well i really did want to talk about your dad because i feel like you know he's such an important uh, person to you and um, clearly clearly he's an important person to you but he's such an important person in your future as well even though yeah, he's exactly he's no longer physically with you but um thank you and uh, best of luck with everything and um we'll we'll speak again soon i hope take care oh, Amal. it's a pleasure and a privilege thanks gabby My thanks to the FD's consumer editor, Claire Barrett. You can follow her at Claire B. That's C-L-A-E-R-B for her up-to-date advice on all things personal finance. It was interesting to hear about DB pensions, wasn't it? The myths surrounding boomers and some of the poor decisions that people are making when it comes to retirement. Because as Claire said, we are all living longer. We've got to think about it. And a huge thanks as well to the absolutely brilliant Amal Rajan for joining me on The Midpoint this week. He was so open and honest about his parenting journey and the grief that he's experienced and experiencing, I think. I don't think it's in any sense over, is it, uh, that loss of his father, which has caused such a huge impact on his life at the moment. And I'm sure it resonated with a lot of people listening. Also, I love the image of four hobs career social life family and health and his acronym seed as well that was also very good and i must apologize for laughing every time he mentioned in his words his failed sporting career or careers actually because it wasn't just cricket was it apparently it was football as well i think he's doing all right then in the career he's chosen please join the midpointers facebook group and let me know if there are other topics you'd like me to cover and other experts you want to hear from this episode was produced by spiritland creative and i hope you can join me again next time i'll see you then Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.